Dan, Martha. Ian. Martha. Peter. Martha. John. Hang on, that was my mother's name. <laughs> <laughs> Hazel, Martha. Which is not my middle name, just Catherine. Anyway. Um... <laughs> Funnily enough, my mother's name is Batman. <laughs> That's weird. Oh, what are you saying, Ian? You don't even have a real wife. <laughs> but what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Ian Mayer, Peter Johnson, John Harvey. Yay! Sorry, and I'm Hazel Burton. <laughs> <laughs> that cheer was because we did the names in the right order, <laughs> which is something Trump would have had difficulty with. Yeah. Welcome to another lockdown recorded episode of Nerdfest. We have got some brand new recommendations for you. In fact, it's a recommendations special. We're also going to do a rundown of what's being revealed at the online version of Comic-Con. So let's start the show. How are you guys doing since I last saw you, which was never? <laughs> <laughs> we saw you last week. We actually, a few of us met in real life for the first time in several months, which was yes. delightful. It was. It was really, really mm. nice. Have you managed to get the barbecue smoke out of your hair yet? By washing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> How do you do it? <laughs> Osmosis. Peter shaves his entire body hair every time he has a barbecue. <laughs> not because of the barbecue, just yeah. makes things... <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> Less friction when you're swimming, yes. swimming in the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody been watching any other stuff coming out of Comic-Con? I did go to San Diego for a few hours before we recorded <laughs> today. Um, because for the first time, San Diego Comic-Con is not in San Diego. It's on the internet, so you can watch it even if you don't have a ticket. I watched panels about Nick Frost's new Amazon Prime show, Truth Seekers, where he's a kind of YouTubing ghost hunter. Looks all right. This is the one he's doing with Simon Pegg. Yes, but by the sounds of it, Simon Pegg's belly in it. Right. Oh, I misheard that. I just I, from the sound of it, Simon Pegg's belly is in it. But not. <laughs> I mean, Simon Pegg's entire body is in it, but not very much by the sounds mm, of just, the panel. It sounds belly. like he yeah. he's he's in it just enough that they can put his name on it. Right. Hmm. Just enough as um, the Scientology cult allows him to be in it allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> Is this your theory that Tom Cruise is leading him astray? I don't know. Something's happened to him. When you look at the joyful creator of Space and Shaun of the Dead and the dead-eyed Hollywood zombie that we have now, <laughs> something's broken there. Crikey, John. That's a pretty harsh... Go, what, did, what did Simon Pegg do to you? Why, why are you going after him so hard? He's one of us. He's, he's a nerd done well. Yes. He was a nerd, but I don't. He's he's gone very Hollywood. I think him and Chris O'Dowd probably have this weird kind of club together where they go into a room and occasionally speak in their original accents. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm just happy for the fact that the shiny, happy creator of Spaced has got to be in Star Wars and is one of the crew of the Enterprise and has been mm. in like four Mission Impossible films. What a nerdy dream come true that actually is! It's great. Yeah. This is amazing. So uh, I watched that panel. I watched the What We Do in the Shadows season two panel, which didn't give very much away about season three, but a few little hints about season three that are enough to keep the hope alive for good TV comedy. Watched a panel about Star Wars publishing and comics and what they've got coming up. Uh, perhaps when I can see Ian again, he can lend me some Darth Vader comics. I would be very, very happy to do so. The Darth yeah. Vader comics in particular have been superb. Yeah, and it sounds like what they've got planned for the next stage of those, setting them between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, looking at the revelation of I am your father, but from Vader's perspective. So we see what it does to Luke, but we don't see how that revelation and the rejection utterly of the son, hmm. how that affects Vader. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it could be done pretty well. 
but not something you'd maybe want to see in the main films, which I guess is what these comics should be doing. That sounds super interesting to me. The um, original Vader comics, which were set between A New Hope and Empire, dealt with the fact that Vader essentially lost face and power between like the two films. The Death Star had been destroyed. He was kind of on his, you know, on his up as he wasn't necessarily the Emperor's favourite. It was, and it put me in a very interesting place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that panel was interesting. And finally, I watched the Bill and Ted Face the Music panel hosted by Kevin Smith. Hmm. And learnt a few interesting things about how Bill and Ted came to be from the writers. And I learnt that one of the co-writers of the Bill and Ted trilogy is Chris Matheson, son of Richard Matheson, who wrote I Am Legend and The Shrinking Man and lots of Twilight Zone episodes, which I didn't know. We've all seen the Bill and Ted trailer. Um, Ian, you're not a fan of the trailer so far? I, I tend to approach things... No, this is a lie. I was going to say I tend to approach things with optimism, but that's clearly bollocks. Um, <laughs> I, I, I tend to have a visceral reaction to most trailers, and this appears to be stinky garbage, and I can't, get, I can't get over that. Ooh. I'm a big fan of Keanu Reeves. I, I, I genuinely think he's a grade A movie star, but I remember early in his career, people were kind of accused him of being quite wooden, and I'm yeah. seeing this kind of wooden Keanu again. It didn't look funny, it didn't have the anarchy I'd maybe want from a Bill and Ted film. I'm afraid I, I, I sense a great disturbance in the force with this one. I'm not really feeling it. And I want to be wrong. I want this to be great, but yeah. I agree with you, Ian. I, I'm, I, I didn't get a sense of the magic. Um, and I'm hoping that they're just um, doing the opposite of what uh, comedies normally do which is uh, do all their funniest jokes in the trailer and then when you watch the film it's like well I've heard that one before it's not quite as funny therefore yeah. you know there's no funny there's there's nothing funny in the trailer therefore all the funniness is in the film that's what I'm hoping but I'm like you that from what I'm seeing uh, I just don't get a sense that this is going to be an enjoyable experience I have not had particularly strong feelings about there being a third Bill and Ted up until that latest trailer but that was the thing that turned me around on it and made mm. me look forward to it. That it gave me a sense of the spirit of the other two. It made me think, I'd actually like to see these characters again. I've got a lot of affection for the Bill and Ted films. The thought of a third one didn't fill me with dread, but it filled me with meh mm-hmm. until this latest trailer, which made me think, okay, yeah, I'm in such a fed up place with this quarantine at the moment that <laughs> I would love a bit of light relief and it looks like this is going to be that. Based on the panel, I think I've got a pretty good idea of where this Mm -hmm. third film is going to go and what the plot's going to be, but I don't think that's going to stop me hopefully enjoying it. And I really do hope that the people they've got together for it, the director of Galaxy Quest, the original writers, Samara Weaving's in there as one of their daughters and she's great in everything. I've got a lot of hope. William Sadler is back that it could be, mm-hmm. if not as good, that then on a similar level. I thought the trailer looked fun. I'm not expecting anything world-shattering, but I'll have another couple of hours with Bill and Ted. Or an hour mm-hmm. and 20 minutes, apparently. An hour and 20 minutes? Apparently it's yep. 78 minutes runtime. Jesus, that's Ooh. not good. Ooh. <laughs> I am Shut here up, for that 90-minute films. Yes, please. Mm. <laughs> I don't know, 78 minutes though, sounds a little bit... I have no source for that. I just saw it mm-hmm. on Twitter. And release-wise, is this uh, a video-on-demand thing as well as some theatres? This is select cinemas and video-on-demand from, I think, the 1st of September. Ooh, yes. okay. Yeah. So not long to wait. No. I think it was intended to just be cinemas, but obviously that's not going to happen in anytime soon. It sounds like, obviously, you know, cinemas aren't going to be open. Um, Tenet has been delayed indefinitely. Bond has been delayed again. I don't think... There's anything at the moment. Does Wonder Woman still have its October release date penciled in? That's not moved yet. We've got West Side Story at Christmas, which hasn't blinked yet. But, you know, the things that have been delayed until September, October time now seem to be without a release date at all. And I think more and more might slip to this um, cinema plus video on demand. But I think it's going to be a premium video on demand, which Trolls World Tour did. And mm-hmm, the yeah. Invisible Man did where they charged something like $20. Yeah. And apparently Trolls World Tour did, did $100 million in 
VOD sales that mm. way. Which, when you imagine that Universal will be taking a bigger cut of it, and yeah. not to pay the distributors or the cinema exhibitors, you know, it's pretty much all clear money. I can see why they would do that. But is that domestic or is that in total? I think that's in total. Because if that's in total, that's, mm-hmm. that's low. It does seem to massively vary for different types of movies. So apparently Christopher Nolan's movies, for instance, sell a lot more out of America than they do in America. It's like yeah. almost two-thirds worldwide. And, mm. But that's not always the case for a load of types of films. A loads of types of films, the American box office is you know, more than half of the take. Yeah. Well, what the, the studios have historically done is they have um, a handful of films which they're bargaining on is going to get you know, the hundreds of millions, if not billion, at the box office worldwide. And that's going to cushion any film like World Tour, which doesn't do as well as they were hoping to. But if there's nothing like that to be the cushion, then I'm not sure what the next few months and year is going to be like for the big studios. I assume another reason for delay is that there's going to be a hole as well. All the things that would have gone into production now obviously haven't been and will go into production very late. So there's going to be a gap beyond... Yeah. Just the mm-hmm. things that are waiting for release. Yeah. I'm intrigued to see if it's impacted animation schedules. Apparently not so much. Yeah. There's obviously a lot of tools for remote work in uh, purely digital spheres like computer games mm-hmm. and, and now animation. So I'm intrigued to see if smart studios have maybe shifted things around and mm-hmm. tried to get animation going. Recording from home is very doable now, like uh, for actors and so on. Yeah, this is obviously on a much smaller scale, but the Simpsons panel at Comic-Con did talk about this a little bit. They had a couple of animators on there Mm. and they're still animating as they would, except they don't go into the studio anymore. They're doing the work from their home computers, but it sounds like they're able to produce the show as they normally would. Well, the Simpsons writers haven't come up with an original idea in 20 years, so... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> is that is that true? You know, are, are we not just too mean on The Simpsons? <laughs> Most of them are fine. And mm-hmm. um, there's the occasional really good one that you could put in the first 10 years and it wouldn't stand apart. There aren't actively bad ones like Behind the Laughter I Hated. Oh, I liked that one. Um, <laughs> just blowing <laughs> your theory there. <laughs> well, yeah, but there are very divisive ones in that early 2000s period as well, like uh, that 90s show, which I quite enjoyed. I hate it. But if you're a stickler for (laughs) timelines, you're not going to like at all. You see, I stopped watching it regularly about 2000, simply because I went to university and we didn't have Sky at university. So So what you're saying is they haven't had an original idea since you stopped watching. Essentially, yeah. Okay, let's do some recommendations and reviews of things that we've been enjoying recently. Um, who, which one of you lovely nerds would like to go first? Me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Do you want to go first, Hazel? I, 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 I can. I would like to talk about um, something new, uh, something that arrived on Netflix a few weeks ago, and that is The Old Guard. Oh, thank God. It's not Hamilton, don't <laughs> worry, but there, there is plenty of time for that. <laughs> uh, so this is a movie that is directed by uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood and written by Greg Rucker, who also wrote the comic book upon which the film is based. Um, it stars Charlize Theron. Is it Theron? 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 I'm going to Theron, Theron. I think. Theron, Theron, I believe. Yeah. Um, Kiki Lane and Chiwetel Ejiofor. And I think it's a really interesting premise in that um, uh, Charlize Theron's character, Andy, leads a group of immortal warriors. Um, and they have been fighting wars for thousands of years. It's not entirely clear just how old Andy is, other than uh, very. Uh, but she is at least as old as the the Spanish Crusades, I think. Um, but the film is set in the present oh, day. Oh, one expects the Spanish Crusades. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the film is set in the present day. Um, and the group that Andy leads has been uh, recruited by Chiwetel Ejiofor's CIA agent uh, for a job. They're reluctant to take part in the job because they're pretty like war-torn and they've been taking the last year out, but they finally agree to it. Um, but it, it doesn't go particularly well and they get 
blown to smithereens, which is not a spoiler because it's in the trailer and it happens like in the first 10 minutes. But what you see is them coming back to life. Uh, and it is incredibly well done. It's literally like death warming up. And then the story introduces us to a brand new uh, type of warrior, another immortal warrior like them, but they're, they're brand new. They've just been killed by a terrorist in Afghanistan. And Andy tracks her down um, and explains who she is, what she is, uh, and what sort of life that she is likely to lead. And she's pretty, pretty, pretty brutal in the way that she explains that. Um, let's just say that she has to prove it. <laughs> the villain of the piece is a pharmaceutical executive called Stephen Merrick. And he's played by Harry Melling, who is also Dudley Dursley from Harry Potter. Huh. Now, he, yeah. <laughs> Never did like that guy. That's a plot twist. What a bastard. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realise it was a crossover film. John, it very well, honestly, could be the same character. Um, so basically, he's, he's discovered these warriors and he wants to uh, exploit them and capture their DNA. This genuinely is the film's weakest aspect. He is an absolute pantomime villain. He's kind of this whiny Mark Zuckerberg character. And I'm not just saying that because I hate the Harry Potter films and I hate his character. He's awful, <laughs> genuinely <laughs> dreadful. Uh, it almost ruins the film. Do you think that's him as an actor or him as a character? Because I saw him in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix mm. a year or two ago, and I thought he was pretty good in his segment with Liam Neeson in that film. Yeah, it, it probably is the character, to be honest, which is odd because I generally thought the story was brilliant. I thought the rest of the story was really well thought out about, you know, these immortal warriors. I thought it was really well directed. There are a couple of other characters. I'm sure from the comic, they're, they're, they're kind of really interesting and I was really intrigued by them. Um, but I think there is probably a sequel in the works where we'll, we'll get to, to kind of meet them. But I did a bit, little bit of research and the sort of the screenwriting process uh, for this seems to be rather turbulent. So Greg Rucker, who is the writer and the, uh, the creator of the comic, for, after his first attempt at uh, doing the, uh, the screenplay, he was um, fired. He got on the phone with uh, Charlize Theron um, and he described that phone call as one of the worst moments of his career. <laughs> Um, wow. So ne yeah, Netflix got in some rewrites, uh, got several people in to do new drafts, um, but they weren't happy with them either. So Greg Rucker got invited back, and Ooh. he did another write, and apparently they were that. That's the version pretty much that we see. They were they were happy with that. I'm not sure what possessed him to come back, but uh, yeah, he, money. he did money. in the end. <laughs> but yeah, apparently they worked out their differences. <laughs> um, uh, Charlize Theron is brilliant. I know it is based on a comic, but it is the kind of role that is usually given to a man. You know, at least in the like 80s and 90s action films, you normally see a man take on this role. And she is, of course, heavily involved in the production side of things. Um, but she proves here that she is one hell of a lead. And I hope she keeps getting offered more roles like this. Most of the stunts were performed by the main actors, which is really impressive because you have to be playing a warrior who has... Uh, you know, seen every war uh, that there's been in the last thousands of years and has, you know, sort of learned every technique, learned every skill in battle and has come to the present day with all of that knowledge and experience. So you have to be incredibly believable on screen and they are. It's a really, really impressive action film. I think it's well worth a watch. I really enjoyed it and I hope there is more to come from this universe. So I hear sort of for a, a mainstream Hollywood action film, it's quite forward thinking and diverse in the representation with things like um, gender and race and sexuality and things like that. Particularly from a sexuality point of view, there are two characters within Charlize Theron's gang called Nikki and Joe. The fact that they're gay is never part of the story. It's sort of a, a matter of fact thing. It's like, okay, they're gay, so what? But they still get to show their affection for each other. It's just a wonderful relationship that they've got. From a representation point of view, I think it's great to see this kind of thing on screen. I really enjoy Charlize Theron's dive into action movies, mm -hmm. and it's got a remarkably high hit rate. You know what I mean? You've got Fury Road, which is she's great in that. Well, she's yeah. great in it, but like, what a insanely accomplished film! You know, it's it's yeah. easily one of the top films of the decade. Uh, Atomic Blonde 
there's an, an extended action sequence towards the end of that that's easy, like 10, 15 minutes, which might be the best fight put on screen in the last 10 years. And I'm, I'm not saying that lightly. There is an amazing making of video on YouTube where the director, and I think that's David Leach again, um, is yep. talking through the scene. He's from a stunt um, background. And he's basically saying, Chalice are on train to the point where they could improvise stuff. You know, they could say, actually, yeah. this isn't working. Use a different kick, use a different technique. And she could pull it off. Um, and she legitimately looks like she can beat up men twice the size. And that's not an easy thing to accomplish. Um, you see it done so badly, even by professional um, stunt performers. It's, it's yeah. a superb thing to watch. So I'm intrigued to see her in this mold again. You get to see her wielding all sorts of weapons like samurai swords and she's basically carrying like her favourite weapon from a war that was probably about 200 years ago. She's like, this is my favourite weapon, I'm going to use it. But no, everyone <laughs> yeah. else is like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So does it suffer at all from the Superman problem of, well, they're clearly invulnerable, they can't die, so where's the peril? Or do you no, feel I, like I, they're in danger? I can't say why. I can't say why because it's a spoiler but that doesn't come into it. Cool. And um, I just want to go on record as saying the Superman problem isn't a problem with Superman, it's a problem with writers. You can <laughs> easily create a threat to Superman by writing, and he was stronger than Superman, or and he threatens <laughs> Superman's family. It's not complicated, seriously. Mm-hmm. I did start watching it, but only got about a quarter of an hour in, but for some reason stopped. So I don't know whether it takes a while to get going or, um, but maybe it's something I need to go back to and give it another try. You know, pace wise, it is uneven. Um, and I mean that in a good way, uh-huh. oddly. Uh, it's not like relentless action, action, action. It takes moments to have people talking in a room and uh, discovering their stories um, and discovering how they feel about each other and then action kicks in and then they have, you have more sort of reflection um, so you might have just got a bit of reflection and you didn't you were just on the cusp of the action I don't mind a bit of reflection <laughs> I always like to get to know somebody yeah. if I punch mm. them in the face <laughs> it might be a just a simply a case of whether you're in the mood or not when you watch something sometimes it, yeah it could be what I would encourage is just put the phone away turn it off put it upstairs um, get in front of Netflix and try to recreate that cinema experience as best as you can I'm trying to do that because obviously I haven't been to the cinema in quite a while um, and I'm very easily distracted by devices and things like that. Um, so in the last sort of while I've tried to turn things off and that's really helped. And that's my test for a film at the moment. Yeah. If a film can stop me playing with my phone. Mm. Well, it's, you know, you've got that distraction <laughs> yeah. in front of you. Your laptop's always there. Your phone's always there. Um, yeah. You know, porn's always there. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> So for me, a test of a good film is, have I watched it without playing on my phone? And if it's born, it's not your phone. <laughs> <laughs> so how many Charlizes out of 10 for the old guard, Hazel? I'm going to give it seven Charlizes. Couple of issues, but still well worth a watch. Hmm. Who's next? I've recently finished The Expanse Season 4 on Amazon Prime. Now, have you guys watched The Expanse? No, it's one of these things we keep hearing about, but never actually get around to watching. It's something I know absolutely nothing about. I've heard a fair amount about it, but again, like Peter, haven't got around to it. I am equally oblivious. So this is an indication that we are in peak TV, that The Expanse, certainly for a lot of people, is flying under the radar. It was on Netflix, then shifted to Amazon Prime, and I think maybe people lost it there. But it is as high a quality a sci-fi show as there has ever been. It's kind of ridiculous. So it's based on a series of novels and, and, and novellas by uh, James S. Corey. Now, this is actually a pen name for two writers, uh, Daniel Abraham and Cy Frank. Daniel Abraham has worked a lot with George R. R. Martin to give you a kind of a sense of their lineage. And it's potentially one of the great sci-fi TV shows. It's set hundreds of years from now. The solar system has long since been colonised and it's sort of split into three big political entities. You've got Earth, which is kind of the old historic sort of centre of power for the solar system. But its resources are spent, like we've completely mined it out, global sea levels have risen, um, and unemployment there is like staggeringly high. You've got Mars, which is kind of the, the newer upstart planet. But then again, this has been terraformed for hundreds of years. It declared independence long before the series is set. And its atmosphere is still unbreathable. 
citizens on Mars still live largely underground um, or, or like in domed cities, but they've got a kind of pioneering spirit. It's, it's rich and minerally and they keep developing their tech and their army quite crucially. And then you have the Outer Planets Alliance, which is in the asteroid belt, which is like beyond Mars and some of the planets around there. And these are a series of industrial colonies and the people there live in zero gravity, like they've been born and raised in zero gravity. And it's considered a lesser power by uh, both the planets. They're considered kind of uh, a bit of a ghetto, like the, the dirty end of the solar system. Now, I'm describing the premise in this way because politics is a massive part of the world. If you watch the intro sequence, it's basically like Game of Thrones, but in space. It shows you these planets and the different relationships between them, like where they are um, physically. But like Game of Thrones, it concentrates on like a human scale of the stories. It's very personal stories in this vast world, seen from very differing points of view. Another key element in The Expanse is physics. This is perhaps the hardest science science fiction series I've seen. There's no warp drive, there's no faster than light travel, which means the realities of living and moving around in space like really feed into the world. To give you a sense of the danger, if you're on a spaceship that accelerates or decelerates too fast, it will kill you. If you've born and lived in zero gravity, actually going onto a planet, going into gravity is like torture. You know what I mean? You just don't have the muscles to do it. You get squished. You do. Spaceship fights are amazing. So if you're in a spaceship fight, you put on a spacesuit, strap yourself into a chair, suck all the oxygen out of the ship so you've got less mass, and keep blowing holes out of each other until you hit something vital. So to get to the story a bit, season one starts quite differently from how season four is. And so I'll just talk about season one and give you a little bit of wider context because I don't really want to spoil anything. Yeah. There seems to be a consensus that season one takes a while to find its feet, or is that not not correct? This is why I asked you if you'd seen it, because I know of a couple of people who've started season one and kind of lost interest. I never suffered from this, but it did definitely get better at being the show it is. They learned to do things in a more economical and sharp way. Uh, Season one starts with a cold war brewing between Earth and Mars. Old animosities, old grudges, who's the kind of power in the solar system is is definitely being played out. But the initial plot starts with a a police detective called Joe Miller. This is played by Thomas Jane investigating a dead body on a series, which is a, a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt. While this is happening, you've got kind of like the Earth Navy, an Earth ship gets into a skirmish with an unknown spaceship that no one knows really where it's from. And the officer there, James Holden, played by Stephen Strait, he becomes sort of the protagonist of the series. Now, while this is going on a well, you've got like the UN Security Council and a particular member of it, uh, Christian Avasalara, played by Shora Agadaslu, who's an Iranian actress, and she's trying to prevent all-out war with Mars. Now, this is where it starts, but the show almost changes genres as it goes. Game of Thrones is a very apt mirror of it in the... Game of Thrones starts with a lot of politics between a lot of different factions with another threat just off screen. And this is definitely how the expanse starts. If you keep your eye opening like the title sequence, it gives you a little hint of what's coming and it changes a great deal. So by the time you get to season four, which I've just finished, it's almost a different show with different concerns. But the production of it and the cast and the writing of it is phenomenal. You see like great actors in small roles. Like uh, Jared Harris is in it, in a, in a kind of a minor way. Uh, Chad Coleman, who was Cutty from The Wire. Mm-hmm. But it casts really well. There's definitely people who I think are going to be big or are going to be something. I'll just pick out uh, uh, the character Kamina Drummer, who's uh, a belter captain played by uh, Cara Gee, who's an actress I haven't seen in anything else. She's one of these women who's like tiny in frame, but looks like she could kick your head in if you just crossed her for a second. She's kind of emblematic of how the show casts. She's really memorable. She's really charismatic. There's a character called Amos, played by Wes Chatham, who I mentioned in the last episode. He's my pick for the next Wolverine. It's a very, very good show, and it's definitely found its feet. Little details, which I think comes from starting as a novel. The thought and effort that goes into a novel without being rushed into production meant for some extremely kind of smart writing and extremely smart world building. This has been like my second lockdown binge, I'd say. Parks and Rec on one side and The Expanse on the other, and I've thoroughly enjoyed them both. How long are episodes, Ian? They're about 45 minutes to an hour. I think they're in that slightly variable length streaming thing, okay. but they're, they're definitely most of an hour. And how long is each season? I think actually the seasons may change, but it's <laughs> this last season was 10 episodes. Do I think they may have been... Season? 
<laughs> yeah, seasons change. That's what they do. Um, I think in previous seasons it may have been 12 or 13. But um, I found myself, and I haven't done this for a while, reaching the end of an episode and knowing I've got another hour to go, but having to start the next one straight mm-hmm. away. It was cancelled by the Sci-Fi Channel after a few series, and then Amazon picked it up. Mm-hmm. And Amazon have just picked it up for a fifth season now, so it's 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 ongoing. So is it serialised or episodic? It's serialised, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's the changing status quo of humanity in the solar system. There are characters that change and evolve. You definitely see growth in a bunch of the characters. Mm. It's a great show. I will check that out once I get through my thousand episodes of MasterChef that I still have to go through. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I ever introduced you to MasterChef Australia. <laughs> I apologise. And how expansive is the number that you're going to give it out of 10? <laughs> uh, I always score high and I kind of feel bad about it, but I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Ah. Mm. Mm. So it's purely belter then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's next. So my recommendation is something that is new to Netflix rather than new to the world. And it is um, a horror film called Hereditary by a director whose name I have just gone blank on. Ari Aster. Avi Asta. Is that how you pronounce it, yeah? Yeah, I think so. That's how it's... Mm. I, I've never heard it said out loud, but... There was a thing in The Guardian this week about the perils of being a well-read person and oh, yes. uh, who constantly mispronounces words that they have read, long words that they have read, but I've never yeah. actually heard in person. It's something that I do all the time because I read a hell of yeah. a lot and then I use the word in completely the wrong Ah, would you like some Hall's Divorce with you before your main course? <laughs> <laughs> I used to call lapels lapels for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say touche is touchy. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd not read it in terms, like, in the context of fencing, which is a word I knew anyway. Mm-hmm. I think J.K. Rowling put an in-joke into the fourth book of Harry Potter because everyone who read the first three books were referring, referring to Hermione as Hermione. So she gets Victor Crumb to pronounce it as Hermione uh, so that she can put it right. <laughs> it's the worst thing she's ever done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, so um, anyway, yes, getting back to it. My recommendation is a film that came out in 2018, but has just appeared on Netflix a few weeks ago, and it is Hereditary by Avi Asner. Um, Are you sure about that? (sighs) What was it? Ari Aster. Ari Aster. As in Ari Aster to marry it, that kind of thing. Ah, okay. And the film... (laughs) That's not going to help. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm just doing this because it's fun. <laughs> it's a film which no one directed. <laughs> it's called Hereditary. It's a film directed by Avi Aster, who is perhaps better known for Midsummer, which came out a year later, um, which I think we talked about the podcast before. And I think we may have briefly mentioned Hereditary a while back yes. when Ian Mack saw it and said it was one of the worst films he's ever seen. <laughs> yeah, um, I believe it was one of our first anti-recommendations. Yeah. Um, I loved it, but whether it's a recommendation or not, again, is another issue because it goes in some very dark places. The more I read about it, the less I like the director, fortunately. What's the name again? Avi Aster. <laughs> 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 So this is a family in America. Tony Collette is the mother. Gabriel Byrne is the father. And then there's two children, the daughter of whom was famous for playing Matilda in the New York version of the stage play. But I think this is her feature film debut. The mother's job is creating miniature dioramas of houses that display in art galleries in terms of jobs that nobody has in real life. Uh, that's up there. So the grandmother who has some tension with the rest of the family, perhaps doesn't agree with the way the family has been raised and so on, dies. And this is a relief, I think, to some extent. So Tony Collette at the funeral talks about the difficult and fraught relationship she has with her mother and how she's kind of, to some extent, perhaps relieved that she's gone. But is she really gone? Ooh, who knows? 
I'm going with no. <laughs> you phrase that. So you've got a bit, you know, you, you, you've got a bit of spookiness. Um, Tony Collette is going up into the loft and going through her mother's belongings and then, oh, what's that shadow in the corner and that kind of thing. And so far, so kind of generic Hollywood horror movie. But then about half an hour in, something happens that is horrible. Not in a supernatural way, just something that happens to this family and the way it happens, it's, I think, one of only two times I've gone like, oh, no, at something on the screen. The- <laughs> Log <Salone. laughs> Yeah, the, the only other time I felt rude to say something out loud during a film recently is Jojo Rabbit. Did I say shoes in Jojo yeah, Rabbit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was shaking when that happened. Um, it's kind of personal to me in, a, in an odd, indirect way. Were you haunted by your grandma? Yes, every day. <laughs> Is Tony Collette disappointed? <laughs> <laughs> the horrible thing that happens is brought on by a peanut allergy, which is something um, that I have. But still, what happens indirectly as a result of that is hideous. It absolutely tears the family apart, and you've got this amazing family drama of trauma destroying a family, family blaming each other, Tony Collette is amazing in it as a woman who is distraught, whose life has been upended completely. And this is about an hour, and I was getting really, really frustrated with the fact that it was a horror film at this point, because all these supernatural shenanigans kept going on. So, you know, is the grandmother possessing one of the people? There's a book that when it sets on fire, they're closed. So there's all these supernatural topics, and the film didn't need them. It, the 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 horror elements of the film just really really distracted from the straight family drama, which is what I wanted to watch at that point. Hmm. Um, Tony Collette, if it wasn't a genre film, would have won an Oscar for it. Tony Collette's amazing in it. Wow. Would you have watched it if it had not been a horror film? I mean, I I was drawn into it by the fact that it was supposed to be this terrified horror film. <laughs> yes, yeah. But when I was watching it, I felt I just wanted to watch the drama because it was so well done. And then about half an hour from the end, there's another twist and the film goes absolutely batshit crazy, goes completely off the rails, goes insane. Grand Grand Guignol, another word I can't pronounce. Guignol, I think. Blood, guts, gore, craziness, all the excesses you can think of in like uh, Italian horror movie of the 70s or Wicker Man or any of those kind of things. It just goes completely insane and ends on a really ambiguous, jarring note. So you've got half an hour of kind of a, almost like a poltergeisty paranormal activity film, an hour of absolutely searing family drama, and then half an hour of crazy horror movie with some of the best, most surreal horror imagery. It's an absolute mess, and I loved it. Sounds absolutely horrific. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds long as well. How long is it? Uh, It's a good two two and a half hours, I think, maybe. Maybe a bit less than that. I'm out. <laughs> Here's a question for you. Is it the quality of someone like Tony Collette that actually undoes it? Are you then so invested in this kind of yeah. real human drama that if it was a slightly schlockier performance, mm-hmm. would it have perhaps worked better for you? Tony Collette's in a different film to everyone else. From what he said, it did sound more like it wouldn't have held your attention nearly so well. Mm-hmm. I must admit, I haven't seen Tony Collette in anything for a good while, and you've just reminded me how much I think she's amazing. She's really good at this. She elevates it. Yeah. I'm- Almost tempted to watch it. Almost. <laughs> it sounds like it should be some sort of punishment if you've committed like a horrific crime. <laughs> it, honestly, I, it, nothing, nothing would make me want to watch that. Nothing. <laughs> if, if my own grandmother's life was at stake and I had to watch this film to save it, I wouldn't do it. She'd only come back to haunt you. The bit that surprised me most about your review was peanut allergy. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Arvin Keris, who friend of the podcast. Hello. Hey, Keris. Basically was too scared to watch it for a while, so her and her partner kept me to put it on. I got lots of messages from her, like, just like, what the fuck? What was this? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. But then also, yeah, I really enjoyed it and love what he doing with the emotional horror, love how he tells the story. Tony Collette's amazing. Were you just reading Keris's review? Then? That was Keris's review there on the on the phone. There. <laughs> so yeah, it's really uneven. It's messy in a way that debut features can be. In that you know, I've got ten ideas that I want to put into one film. There's a lot of shocking imagery in there in places, and uh, some things that I felt that you didn't need to see. 
And I wanted to give the guy the benefit of the doubt that that imagery was there as part of the character's emotional horror and what they were going through. And then I read his film that he made whilst he was at university was a short film about adult incest and sexual abuse. He said, we were talking about topics that were too taboo to be explored and we arrived at taboos that weren't even taboos. So essentially he made the short film because he just wanted to make something shocking because he wanted to yeah, break no. taboo. Yeah, no. no. Yeah. I'm beginning to think Ian Mack was right in his anti-recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of made me think, well, I really like the film, but have I given the director too much credit? I'm not sure whether he has anything himself emotionally that interesting to say below the surface level of I've watched horror movies for the last 20 years. Here's all my influences. So as you talk about it, it sounds like you're getting less keen on it as you went. (laughs) Bearing all of that in mind, how many horrific peanut allergies would you give it out of 10? It's so difficult. Um, I'm going to give it eight. That's a generous eight. Mm. Takes a lot to shake me as a horror connoisseur. Mm. And there was a few things in there that shook me. Peter, what's your recommendation? Very different to to the last one. Um, I'd like to talk about Palm Springs. <gasps> Lovely film. I love this film. It's a time travel rom-com, and it stars Andy Samberg and Kristen Milotti, who get stuck in this sort of Groundhog Day-esque time loop. Andy Samberg's probably best known now for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I didn't rate him in the first thing I saw him, which was a series called Cuckoo, where he played a very irritating boy that uh, a girl brought home to her parents. For a while, I saw him as like a budget Adam Sandler, if that's even possible. <laughs> Adam Sandler is the budget Adam Sandler. <laughs> well, exactly. Did, did they not star together in a film? Were they not in That's My Boy yes, together? Yes, I think they've been in several. They're in the orbit of each other. They're both sort of Saturday Night Live, aren't they? Yeah, The Lonely Island. Uh, yes, he is in a group. Uh, and yes, they did do some things for Saturday Night Live. But I, I've changed my opinion of him now after seeing him in Brooklyn Nine-Nine and quite a few other things. Kristen Malotti, I think I only knew from Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Where she played the female lead in the USS Callister episode. Yeah. Is she the mother in How I Met Your Mother? She is. Apparently so. Yeah. Is that a spoiler? Probably is. Sorry. <laughs> that there is a mother? I think everyone knew there was no, a mother. It's, it's in the title of the show. <laughs> so in this, uh, Andy Sandberg's character Niles wakes up every morning at the hotel in Palm Springs, where he's staying for a wedding. And it becomes apparent that he's lived this day many times before. He saves Kristen Malotti's character Sarah, who's the maid of honour, from having to do a speech at the ceremony. And they form a a bond together, but she ends up stuck in the same time loop as him. And we then follow the relationship as they enjoy the fun they can have, knowing there are no consequences. But then they also realise no consequences also mean nothing really matters. If things don't change, you know, what's the point of it all? A trick with these movies is to have the right amount of repetition, without that part getting boring or annoying. This manages it really well. It throws in fresh ideas all the time, or it reveals extra elements of a plot that give you a different understanding of what's been happening, which I didn't realise the first time through the loops. It introduces a third person, played by J.K. Simmons, and he's been looping since before Sarah, and he's trying to get revenge on Sandberg's character for trapping him here. The whole thing's its quite nicely judged, it's got likeable leads, without that sort of crass, juvenile stuff that you get in so much American comedy. And I'm a sucker for any movie with time travel in it, so I was predestined to like it from the start, I think. It's available on Hulu in the US, and it's set records there in its first three days. But I don't think it's yet been announced for the UK. It was going to come here to cinema. I would expect it to show up on Amazon Video, probably, with it being a Hulu. Yeah. Like you, Peter, I love a good time travel story. I love a good time loop story, and this is definitely a really good one. I thought Kristen Malotti was fantastic as Sarah... Andy Samberg played the balance of almost nihilism, which is interesting because he's called Niles, and <laughs> enjoyment of the time loops really well. The whole tone of the film was just, like you say, nicely judged. J.K. Simmons was great when he popped up. Peter Gallagher is in there as well. And there was some really nice cinematography as well, I thought. Some beautiful shots in there. It made you care about the characters. It was great visually. And the way it all wrapped up just gave me a nice 
happy feeling at the end of it, which is the kind of film I'm looking for these days. Mm-hmm. Peter Gallagher, of course, being um, he played the nicest dad that's ever been on TV. Indeed. Sandy from the OC. And he is yeah. also a dad in this. And he's got oh. one particular moment with Sandberg that I didn't see coming, but found <laughs> laugh out loud funny. And I know the moment you mean. Peter Gallagher for me is like the creepy character in films. So I, I didn't realise he had this whole other career as a lovely dad. Yeah. I he's think in he was Sex in Life Life Video videotape. Type. Oh, jinx. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's also, we've been watching him recently in something like Zooey's Extraordinary Playlist. Mm. Peter, where would you place this in like the pantheon of time loop stories? I think it's pretty good. I, th- I would mm. say uh, above Happy Death Day. Mm-hmm. Obviously, everything has to bow down before the greatness of Groundhog Day. But it's it's up there in a in a sort of quality threshold. It's very it's it's good. Yeah, it, it's good. I think, like many things, though, if you go in with lower expectations, you'll think it's fantastic. <laughs> it's a good show. It's well worth watching. Cool. I was worried that we were just going to get a Groundhog Day ripoff, but it's certainly not that. Obviously, no. it's the same general concept. But the idea of you start with one of your main characters already within the time loop, having already experienced this day hundreds if not thousands of times is a new twist on it so you're not going you know you're yeah. not following the, mm-hmm. the, the the groundhog day trajectory it does enough different with the idea and the idea of having two characters in it uh, which i know russian doll played with a little bit mm. me and dan disagree slightly on the ending I, think. <laughs> I i would say that our disagreement comes from the fact that john prefers more ambiguity in his endings Whereas I like my loops to be closed, let us say. Mm. <laughs> One way or another, I like to have a definitive conclusion. Name of this expert. Is that too much of a spoiler? It's, I would have liked it to end two scenes before it did. It, it talks about whether this is something that you want to escape from. I think, you know, whether the character is quite comfortable. Mm. And it plays with that in a very funny way, but there's a darker undercurrent to it because... Niles says at one point that he doesn't even really remember what he did mm-hmm. outside of the mm. loop. Yes. Um, so the idea is that, you know, even if he breaks out of the time loop, what's going to happen to him then? Mm-hmm. Are all his memories of the rest of his life going to come back? Will he remember where he lives? What if he's been at this wedding, but actually he's divorced and he's got two kids at home? Mm-hmm. Was the point of one article I read about the film. So the, there are consequences if you don't end the loop but there could be consequences even if you do end it. Sarah doesn't have that trouble. She can still remember everything. But for Sandberg's character, there's another level to that fact that mm-hmm. we're introduced to him already having been in the loop. I love time travel. Like, really, really love time travel. And I'm, I'm intrigued to see where this fits in the kind of spectrum of Groundhog Day to like Russian Doll in terms of slight creepiness. There's some slight creepiness in there, but it's, it's dealt with head on. There is... a. Th- a thing he doesn't reveal till about halfway through, which mm-hmm. is perhaps the only thing in that respect. Yeah. It's not as creepy as maybe Groundhog Day could be interpreted as. Mm. You say that it's been released on Hulu in the United States, yeah. but doesn't have a distributor over here. So yeah. how did you watch it? We travelled to the States. <laughs> We're actually in Palm right. Springs right on now. A, on a time loop. <laughs> time travels like that. Yeah. Um, I'm just, on behalf of our listeners, I'm just curious as to how they'll be able to access it. But uh, yes, it sounds like time travel is the only solution. The likelihood is it'll come out quite soon, which is okay. why why we're yeah. one reason we're talking about it now. So then get excited. Yes, exactly. I was actually yeah. watching it in America, or so my VPN says. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I talked about this the other day, that I would genuinely love to see a sequel to Groundhog Day, where it's the next day. Um, and we touched about... Oh, we, we Wouldn't t- it be better if you go you go in thinking it's the Groundhog sequel, but actually it's the same movie? <laughs> <laughs> How many days in a row out of ten would you be happy to watch the film up, over again? Uh, I'd, I'd give it eight and a half days in a row out of ten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would give it a nine. I'm an eight, but a high eight. So I'm an eight and a half then. <laughs> so eight and yeah. a half. We don't, do halves. <laughs> we don't do halves here. <laughs> Right, Dan, bring us home. And don't throw away your shot. This is option one for my recommendation. I'd like to recommend Hamilton on Disney+. Plus. Fuck. 10 out of 10. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) This is option two for my recommendation. (laughs) What I'd also like to recommend is the other thing that's taken up most of my time for the past month or so, 
which is The Last of Us Part 2 on PS4. Mm. Tread it, very, very carefully here because I'm just about to start it. It's a game that <laughs> many people who are listening to this might have already played. It's one of the fastest-selling PS4 titles there's been, but it is just a masterpiece. It's so involving, so engaging, surprisingly emotional, and a game that sucked me in and got me invested in a way that very few games ever have. The story of this one revolves around the consequences of things that happen in the first Last of Us game, which came out about seven years ago on PS3 and was then remastered. And you see what the results of your actions lead to. You mostly play as the character Ellie in this game, who is the person that Joel is protecting in the first game. It's some period of time later, she is older, she is having troubles with trauma, and you set out on a quest with her for what appears to be closure could be interpreted as revenge. I'm being deliberately vague here. The things that happen in the plot had me jaw on the floor, hands clenched. What's going to happen? Oh no, don't let this happen. This just happened. What's going to happen now? And the story continues to build in unexpected ways. And the way it involves you, both in the cutscenes and in the action you play as, is really impressive. The game for the story to progress needs you to commit acts of violence and do things that you as the player start to feel increasingly uncomfortable about doing, but you have to do it to get the story along. So your feelings about the character that you're playing start to change the more you play it in a way that I've not really felt Mm. with a major games release before. There's always that thing where you try and have a narrative on games where you've got like Red Dead Redemption, my character's anti-violence and I just want to go to the sunset and I'm a good guy and then you're shooting 500 people for next to no reason. The Last of Us Part 2 doesn't make the people that you attack faceless. They're all individuals. In some cases, you actually get to explore their story and scenes and you get to know their side of it before you then have to kill them. Gunning down lots of people and going, Revenge! isn't necessarily a good way to do things and it's only going to cause more pain. And by making you do it, it sort of makes you complicit, Mm -hmm. which is something a game can do that a film would find harder to do successfully. Yeah. Dan, for the benefit of people who may not know, what's the premise of the world in which this game takes place? Scarily, about 20 years ago, there was a pandemic. (laughs) Something happens to your brain that infects you and basically turns you into a zombie. And the more exposed to spores in the air and things you are, the creepier and scarier a zombie you become. You start to deform, you bloat, you become what's known as a clicker who can't see anything but attacks by sound. I think this might be what's happening to me during lockdown. Yeah, (laughs) me too. Rival groups have been engaging in a civil war over the rights to the city and the land, and you get embroiled in all of that, but there's a huge personal element to it as well. You meet a new main character called Abby, and your time is either spent a little bit with her and mostly with Ellie, who's grown up to be a confident queer woman in a world where everything and everyone could be out to get her. And this is where the game has come in for a bit of backlash from the same very vocal, very small minority who get at things like The Last Jedi for being too massive air quotes here, Snowflake, PC, SJW. Uh, listen to the podcast, that is not making massive air quotes. Yeah. He's, his face suggests <laughs> he agrees with everything these people say. Categorically, I do not. Uh, But these people have review bombed the game. They've sent death threats to the voice actors because they're playing either queer women or people of colour or just a woman who has a muscled physique and doesn't look like Lara Croft. Yes, I've seen some of the stuff about Abby and it's just incredibly unpleasant. And a large number of this very vocal wrong minority haven't even played the game. Uh, Mm -hmm. but are determined to take it down because they want to play as a straight white man. I 
can't see criticisms of this game. I think it's impeccably done. It's beautifully realised. There are tiny little moments and huge moments that just moved me completely. Just finding a letter from a young boy in a drawer in an abandoned house that was written to Santa asking for a dog for Christmas so his dad can be protected when he goes out hunting. That's right at the start of the game, and that just got me. Mm. But if you're listening to this and you haven't played the game and you've seen these review bombs, ignore them. Have you played it, Ian, as somebody who is a, a game designer or a so I'm Yeah, so my job is narrative in games and Naughty Dog are at the pinnacle of a lot of narrative in games. Yeah. This is a very linear story. So this is a story which you will experience in the same way as everyone else. I think they're the best in games, like in terms of the performances they elicit from actors now, they, how they render humanity is remarkable. The writing of these games is perfect. It's, it's remarkably high quality of writing. Um, but before you said about how sometimes you feel your actions and the actions of the characters are different and clash, like you'd expect different things from how you play in a game to mm-hmm. what a character does. This is a famous problem in games and naughty dog do fall foul of that but to be fair their solution is just right we're just going to make it great so it may not be what you would have wanted to do but it'll be delivered to you in such a way that most people take to it on a different and technical front the amount of polish which goes into tiny elements is ridiculous yeah i should mention ellie collects superhero trading cards and i had huge amounts of fun I could have just gone around that world collecting the trading cards. Mm. We go through an abandoned supermarket at one point early in the game, and in a very creepy topical reference, I zoomed in just in the staff room, and there was a stay safe, stop the spread, wash your hands poster. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) and then I looked around, and they had the employee of the month posters, and July's employee of the month was a Labrador. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You can pet the dog in this game as well. Mm. You can pet the dog. Excellent, which is always a sign of quality. It was interesting. I was playing The Last of Us Remastered last week, and I was completely engrossed and enjoyed watching playing it. And then my partner was on the sofa, and she was watching it, and she's going, you're not in control? Because uh, she's a playwright, and she could mm. see very clearly that I was being funneled down a specific path and actually had no control over the storyline or what was happening. But the game, only actually playing it, it's just so engrossing that you just don't don't notice that at all yeah Mm -hmm. i think it's a different way of doing it because you've got these huge open world games where you can go off and do whatever you want whenever you want this isn't trying to be that so i think i'm okay with it doing that there are different strengths and weaknesses of the two approaches though because oh yeah you have the freedom of open world whereas this sort of game is more like playing a film but you feel you're involved in it Mm. yeah it's the high watermark of that Apparently early on in its development, there was some talk about making it an open world game. Ooh. They changed tack very early on and went back to the linear narrative of the first one. Yeah, There's a huge overhead of trying to cope with all the different possible outcomes of a thing. Mm-hmm. You may walk past a doorway. How do you know whether or not someone's going to open that doorway? But you need to store the huge, highly detailed inside of that room just in case someone opens the door. Yeah. I mean, that's something I noticed a lot in the first one. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of... Um, boxes or rubble on staircases so you can't get up to the next level or uh, a door that has a bit of wood in front of it there are artists who've spent their entire careers finding (laughs) artful ways to block roots yeah (laughs) it's it's, uh it is a big skill so dan where would you place this in the pantheon of time loop stories (laughs) (laughs) hi (laughs) um good how many fungus-faced zombies out of 10 would you give it dan it's the full 10 fungus-faced zombies. Ooh. I'm going to sneak past them very, very slowly so they don't all eat me, but it's the full 10. Splendid. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed that, but um, Hamilton? Uh, Hamilton, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let me take you through it second by second. Well, when I saw it in London, <laughs> I thought I'm the gasp the at the end live. was her having reached the other side. Uh, 
And that's all we've got time for for today's episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so, so much for listening. Um, do check us out on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. We're always looking for your questions that we can answer on the next episode. So do send those in. Um, and if you have the time and inclination, it would be awesome if you could leave us a hopefully positive review uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. And uh, John has got a, an immensely special reward for anyone who does that. What is that? Today, yes, John. I will come out to your house and I will perform my one-man rendition of the entire Hamilton score through your letterbox, based on having seen the play once and not doing any research beforehand. <laughs> Genuinely would like to see that, actually. <laughs> we will be back in two weeks' time with some more buffs and bluffs and whatever we come up with. Until then, you've been listening to... A man who's going to get back to watching Hamilton non-stop... A man in a time loop, a man in a time loop, a man in a time loop. <laughs> a man who keeps reliving the recording of this podcast every day until we can get it right. A putrid lockdown bloater. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and a woman who is going to be spending quite a lot of time looking at backstage performances of Charlie Theron doing some stunt work. That came out not quite how I intended. <laughs> Bye. Bye. My nephew's obsessed with Star Wars at the moment, but he pronounces Chewbacca as Chewbacca. The presenter of a question of sport. Yeah, exactly. Yes, (laughs) but we've got to pronounce it actually. We say Chewbacca. He corrects us. It's Chewy Barker and Booba Fett. <laughs> and if we pronounce them correctly, he stops and gets really angry and insists that we've given them the wrong names. So this goes on for quite a while. It's not actually far off the way Anthony Daniels says it in the films, though. That's where he's got it from. He's quite, ah, oh, oh, Chewbacca. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's, that's, yeah. He's picked that's up very C-3PO's. good, Dan. Thank you. My C-3PO impression is <laughs> one of my better Star Wars ones. It's not. And now on BBC One, Chewy Barker stars in Open All Hours. <laughs> <laughs>